on this last Lord's Day of the year, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, where we will begin reading from verse 37 and end up at verse 41. Acts 2.37-41 to uh, If you're using the Bible in the back, it begins on page 910. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said, and said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity again to stand, sit uh, before your word and to hear uh, this pivotal text of scripture that you have inspired for us to learn from and to heed and to obey. And so we pray for your help this morning, Lord. We want to be the absolute best church that we can be. And if that's going to happen, Lord, then we need to hear this text and we need to apply it and we need to understand it and it needs to go deep in us. So I pray that you would do an illuminating work this morning. Holy Spirit, we are speaking about you. And so I pray that you would do that work this morning and that you would open eyes and hearts and minds to see and that a deeper reality of what you have called us to and prepared us for and invited us into would be seen and relished in this morning. So we pray for your grace and your help to that end for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a uh, well-known biblical scholar who for years uh, published a 30-page theological journal. And he sent this journal out... um, Every month, he would write 30 pages, and he did this for years, decades, in fact. And, um, and he would mail it to anybody that was hungry for what he called the deeper truths of God. Kind of an old expression, but something that is meaningful. During those years, he ended up releasing 380 issues of theological writing. That's tons and tons of writing, and some of it's incredible stuff. Uh, in those journals. And in one of them, he says the following. Listen to this. He says, let's face the solemn fact that the greatest lack of all in Christendom today is the absence of the Holy Spirit's power and blessing. Review the activities of the past 30 years. Millions of dollars, millions of dollars have been freely devoted to support of professed Christian enterprises, Bible institutes, and schools have turned out trained workers by the thousands. Bible conferences have sprung up on every side. Countless booklets and tracts have been printed and circulated. He says, time and labor have been given by almost an incalculable number of personal workers. And with what results? 
Has the standard of personal holiness advanced? Are the churches less worldly? Are their members more Christ-like in their daily walk? Is there more godliness in the home? Are the children more obedient and respectful? Has the standard of honesty in business been raised? Numbers of professing Christians have increased, but fleshly activities have multiplied, while spiritual power has waned. Why? Because there is a grieved and quenched spirit in our midst. While his blessing is withheld, there can be no improvement. What is needed today is for the saints to get down on their faces before God and cry unto him in the name of Christ to so work again so that what has grieved his spirit may be put away and the channel of blessing be opened once more. Powerful and prophetic words. And these words came from the pen of Arthur Pink in 1932. 32. I was just thinking about that and I was amazed how relevant those words are for us in 2014. Now penetratingly helpful they are for us to hear those words. And, and so, and, and even in his time to be that concerned and to see how far we've slipped uh, from that time. Well, today we are finishing a Christmas series that we started entitled Four Gifts Unwrapped. And we've been looking at four gifts that God has given to us. And, and in fact, we summarize these gifts by what they produce in us. A new start, um, a new record, a new life, and a new power. These gifts are the f- uh, gifts of faith and repentance, the gift of righteousness, the gift of eternal life. And today we unwrap one more gift. I know Christmas is over, but there's one more gift. And the gift we're going to unwrap today is absolutely beautiful. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that language is used in the New Testament. Ziombo just read it. Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, this morning, we're not going to do a typical exposition of Acts 2.38, but what we're going to do is look at this phrase here in verse 38, and we're going to see what the rest of the Bible has to say about the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's not something that we've explored a lot of in our church, especially recently, and so this is going to be a good exercise for us this morning to think about the phrase, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, that phrase actually only occurs two times in the entire New Testament, but a similar phrase, the phrase, receive the Holy Spirit, occurs four times. And then, of course, we have the words of Jesus in, a, in Luke eleven thirteen, who says, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that's it's give in the Holy Spirit. It's a very similar idea there. But what does it mean to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? I mean, are we talking about the baptism of the Spirit, Acts 1, 5, where that language is used? Are we talking about the empowering of the Spirit, Acts 1, 8? Is, is this the filling of the Spirit, Acts 2, 4? Is it the outpouring of the Spirit, Acts ten forty five, Or is it the indwelling of the Spirit, Romans 8, 9? What, what is the gift that's being promised here? Well, the longer I considered that question, uh, the more it became clear to me that we don't have to choose between those alternatives. There's just no need for that. The, The answer to the question, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit, is simply this. When we repent and are baptized, we are given the Holy Spirit himself and all of his ministry to us. That's what the gift of the Holy Spirit is. It's his entire ministry. In other words, after we're converted, we have the Holy Spirit. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, we have whatever the Holy Spirit is pleased to give to us. And that means we should pray and we should expect the Spirit to empower us for ministry and for life. And to pour out blessings in our life with fresh power for his good and for God's glory, for our good and for God's glory. Now, just to be clear, uh, when we talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit, um, we're not simply talking about the gifts of the Spirit. So 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, we have the gifts of the Spirit. We're not talking about that merely. Um, Neither are we talking about the fruit of the Spirit, those graces that God works into our life over time. We're talking about the Spirit himself and his entire ministry to us, wherein we also experience a filling, an empowering, an enabling, and an anointing, especially for ministry. 
It's the Spirit himself and all that he has promised to give to us if we will seek him. Now, when we're talking about this gift of the Spirit, two realities uh, are clear. The first is this. There's an initial reception of the Spirit, which is really the essence of Acts 2.38 at conversion. When you're converted, you initially receive the Holy Spirit. And then there's a subsequent filling and ongoing ministry of the Spirit. And both are in view when we talk about the phrase, the gift of the Spirit. Both that instantaneous, once for all deliverance of the Holy Spirit to us. And then that ongoing, subsequent filling ministry of the Holy Spirit for the duration of our life. So it's really important that we make that distinction. And both are in view with the phrase, the gift of the Spirit. But when we repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, we are granted access to that gift. So I guess the natural place to start this morning is have you done that? I mean, have you repented? I mean, that's the most obvious application of the text. Have you repented and and been baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Because if not, then the most pressing issue for you this morning is not, do you have the gift of the Spirit? The most pressing issue for you this morning is, your sins are not forgiven. You're still in an unforgiven state. And so you need to get right with God. And you must do that through repentance and faith. It's a turning away from your life of sin. It's a complete heart and attitude change toward Jesus Christ. And it's taking Christ at his word. It's confessing, verse 36, that he is both Lord and Christ. It's yielding and submitting and surrendering all of your life to Jesus. Well, now that we've explained at a basic level what the gift of the Spirit is, let me share with you the burden of my heart for this message. Um, the issue for our church, as we're preaching, I mean, I don't, we're not just preaching in a vacuum. We're preaching in a context. And we have a church here. And, and so the issue for our church is this, is what are we doing with this gift? And that was the question that's burning in my heart. What are we doing with the gift of the Spirit? I mean, as a church and individually. Because unlike the initial reception of the Holy Spirit at conversion by grace, listen... The ongoing and subsequent ministry or filling of the Spirit is dependent in large part on how we live and conduct ourselves. The Bible is really clear on that. 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 22, Ephesians 4, 30, Ephesians 5, 17 and 18, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. It's serious. There is a blessing that you can miss out on depending on how you are living and conducting yourself before God. And we need to say that. We have a responsibility in this matter. God will not fill, anoint, bless, or empower us when we are living ungodly lives, period. You may have the Holy Spirit initially at conversion, but you are not promised that extraordinary outpouring and filling of God's Spirit. It's not a right It's a privilege and it's dependent in large part on how we pursue God and how we seek him. And it comes through being a good steward of this gift. See, God can be grieved and his ministry in your life diminished. Sin will keep us from fellowship and communion with God. Now, there's one overarching truth that I want to share with you and then I want to draw a conclusion from it. Okay, the overarching truth this morning is this, is that the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift given by God to the believer. Okay, post-conversion is the greatest gift given by God to the believer. And if that's the case, then hear me, the obvious conclusion is that we must care for this gift with the highest degree of concern and diligence. So let's take those one at a time. First, the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift given by God to the believer. The greatest gift that the ascended Christ ever gave to his church was the Holy Spirit. I mean, what could be greater than deity? What what is the power of the kingdom? By what power do we live? By what power do we engage the darkest and most hostile places in the world with the light of the gospel like the Baldwins are doing? Or like our friends uh, Heath and, and his wife are doing? What... 
By what power do they do such things? By what power do we endure sufferings and trials and persecutions in this life? By what power? It is by the filling and ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I'm speaking this morning about the absolute necessity and at times the tragic missing reality of the experiential ministry of the Holy Spirit in our daily life. It is the power of the kingdom and the power of the kingdom flows from the ministry of the spirit of God. And such that without this power, without this experience, without this extra influence of God's spirit, all of our spiritual gifts, all of our theological education, all of our strategic planning, all of our correct methodology is lifeless and powerless. I mean, we can, we can just operate on the arm of the flesh, but we're not going to move anywhere. So we need God's spirit and his power and that experiential ministry of God's spirit. You say, well, Pastor Jonathan, it sounds to me like you're kind of preaching an experience this morning. Absolutely, I'm preaching an experience this morning. I'm preaching a biblically directed, scripturally defined and properly expressed experience. Tell me this. How can the spirit of the living God lay hold of a man's life and that man not experience something profound in his mind and heart and soul and gut? How can God touch a man and he not be shaken by that? That's preposterous. And so... What I want to happen this morning is for God to create within us a fresh hunger and a renewed conviction that if we have everything else, but we do not have the ongoing power and presence and influence of the Holy Spirit upon our life and ministry, then we will not have a transforming effect on others. And we will make very little headway in our personal struggle against sin and in our desire to know God and be used of him. Now, of course, in a sermon on the Holy Spirit, um, we could talk about many things. We could, for example, there's multiple and varied ministries of the Holy Spirit. We could have spent our time this morning talking about the witness of the Spirit, where he gives us assurance of our salvation. We could be talking about the comfort of the Spirit, the fellowship of the Spirit, where he fellowships with us during hard times like he's doing with the Gollies right now. We could be talking about the teaching ministry of the Spirit that leads us into all truth or the sanctifying work of the Spirit that helps us fight sin and many other things. These are all glorious realities, but we're not talking about any of those things this morning. Nor are we talking about the baptism of the Spirit that which occurs at conversion and joins us to the body of Christ. Nor are we talking about the indwelling of the Spirit where he comes to us and lives within us. Nor are we talking about the sealing of the Spirit wherein God marks us by way of ownership. Those are all objective things that happen to us at the very moment of salvation. All believers experience the baptism, the indwelling, and the sealing of the Spirit. But those things are all non-experiential realities of the Holy Spirit that happen at the point of conversion. And we're not talking about any of those things this morning. Instead, what we're talking about is what the Bible calls the filling of the Spirit. And because this is one aspect of what it means to have the gift of the Spirit and that we have not emphasized that much, it is huge for us to consider this. I mean, it's part of the ongoing ministry of the Spirit that we have access to. And so, when I talk about the filling of the Spirit, I'm talking about something distinctive. Something separate from the ordinary operations of the Spirit that happen at conversion. This is an extraordinary work of God. And yet it's something, even though it's extraordinary, it's something that we're commanded to pursue. Ephesians 5. And so, and so... We're commanded to pursue this. It's also something that's repeatable. It's something that's expansive. It's something that's ongoing. It's something that is vitally necessary in our lives if we are going to be used by God. We're talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit as it relates to filling and empowering and enabling and strengthening and anointing for ministry. Now, of course, when we talk about uh, this experiential ministry of being filled with the Spirit... Uh, We open ourselves to misunderstanding. We open ourselves to imbalance. And so let me say this. We're not advocating 
nor are we a group of wild, emotionally excessive, experience-driven Christians. I mean, it gets obvious from having spent some time around here. We're not that. But hear this. We are also not a cynical, arms-folded, dry, ethereal, anti-supernatural community that thinks God isn't moving with power anymore. I hope we're not that. We must not be that. In short, we want all that God has for us and nothing else. Don't want any more. We just want all that God has for us, but we don't want any less than that. We want all that God has for us and nothing more. And so when we talk about experience, we must be quick to point out that the Bible interprets our experience and not the reverse. So we don't have an experience and then sort of look through the Bible and try to justify it somewhere. The Bible dictates our experience. It shows us what kind of experiences we should expect with the Spirit. And the experiences that the Bible tells us that we should be experiencing, those things, we should expect. We should pursue. We should invite. We should be open to. And it's important to point that out. And yet at the same time, there's a greater ministry of the Spirit that is available to us that we should expect to experience. The truth is... God is willing to move upon his people with extraordinary power at times and influence them if we will pursue him. And that needs to be said. He's willing to do that. That's his heart. That's why we cannot be content. We cannot settle as a church. The the more this church or any church smells like man, the worse off that place is. I mean, there ought to be an aroma of God that fills his church and fills his people and fills our homes. There should be a longing and a hunger and an expectation for more of God. Not more, listen, don't miss this, not more of his gifts merely, but more of God himself. We want the giver. And when we get the giver, oftentimes the gifts will come with it. But we need to pursue the giver because, listen, everyone wants to see the hand of God move. In power, but we have an appointment with the face of God. And if we get with and before the face of God, we very well may see the hand of God move with power. But let's not reverse those things. Let us know Him, church. Let us strive to be filled with Him and satisfied with Him. And from that, everything else will flow in our lives. See, the size of our church. The programs that we offer, the exciting events that we host and plan, those things are not the issue. They're just not. The most pressing issue for any church and for our church is that we are a God-saturated body full of his spirit. And if we have that, then we know that God will come and he will move in power. I would rather be a pastor of a tiny church of God-fearing, spirit-anointed people any day than to be a pastor of a trendy, uber-cool, hipster, modern super awesome mega church that has a form of godliness but denies its power. God spare us from that. And we trust as as your pastors that you share that vision with us because by that we will have a true and lasting influence on this city. I mean, who cares if you have a big turnover rate? Lots of people coming and going, coming and going. What matters is, are we having a lasting, serious, sustained effort and ministry in this city? And that will not happen if we are relying on the flesh. That happens through the power of God and the influence of his spirit upon us. And so that is what we are looking for. So often the spirit is missed. In, in church growth models, he's just missed. He's missed because we're, we're so bent on, on just our wisdom and our ways and our strategy and our process and our thinking and our stuff. He's missed because we're worldly and we're materialistic and we miss the point of what God has called us to. Sometimes it's like the spirit is the greatest gift given to us, but he's the forgotten God. It's like we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. Where it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We must pursue a ministry of the Spirit. But it's tragic when we do that. The gift of the Spirit and His ongoing ministry in our lives is the greatest gift God has given to us. Now, secondly, if that's the case, 
then the obvious conclusion, as I said, is that we must care for this gift with the greatest degree of concern and diligence. And, and really, this is, the, this is the part of the sermon where I want to speak very practically with us this morning about things that hinder us, that hinder that move of God, that operation of God in our life, that special work of God. Because there are, there are things that hinder that, that impede that process from happening, and we need to consider that. It should be obvious that once we've received the Holy Spirit, that initial gift of the Spirit through repentance and faith, that we should expect Him to show up with fullness and power throughout the duration of our life. I mean, we should expect that. We should want that. We should anticipate that. We should be praying toward that. We should be asking for that. The only remaining question for us this morning is this. Are we doing anything right now to hinder his work and power in our life? And that's a massive question. I mean, just just think about yourself now for a minute. Are, Are you doing anything to hinder the work of God in your life and his power. And that's, a mass, that's massive for us to consider. We want to know the ongoing ministry and the filling of God's spirit. And if we want to know that, then we need to understand what keeps that work from happening and from being expressed in our lives. It really starts here with the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. We're not talking about an energy or a force. We're talking about a person and, and a person can be grieved. And so the Holy Spirit as a person can be grieved by our sin. A person can remove his influence or help in our life. And that's why we must care for this gift of the Holy Spirit with the greatest degree and highest degree of diligence and concern. It's possible to minimize or to forfeit the ministry of the spirit in our lives. And we don't want to do anything that would lessen his power or influence in our lives. And what a tragic thing that is when we consider, just stop and consider all the things that the Holy Spirit does for us. He teaches us, he convicts us, he comforts us, he draws us close, he works faith in us, he indwells us, he cleanses us, he guides us, he assures us of God's love, he seals us, he helps us, he prays for us, he transforms us, he preserves us, he empowers us. And that's just a start of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in our life. And so it's essential that we are faithful to do all that we can to preserve his work and ministry in our life. And, and that requires constant care and constant attention, especially of our own hearts. Now, we are saved by grace, and we are loved by God unconditionally. In fact, uh, the beauty of the gospel is that despite all of our failures, we are more loved than we ever dared imagine. But that doesn't mean that our relationship with God is good. Just be clear about that. Your standing with God is good. But that doesn't mean that your communion with God is good or your fellowship with God is good. Relationships require effort. If I don't talk to my wife, if I don't invest in her, our relationship will suffer. If I don't go out of my way to know Tina and befriend her, then we may be married. We very well may be married But that doesn't mean that we have a meaningful relationship. We're just coexisting. The same is true with God. If we don't seek to know God and to keep a close relationship with him, our fellowship with him will suffer. It's true that once we're united to Christ, that union with Christ cannot be broken. But hear this, that doesn't mean that you have a close fellowship with him. If our union with Christ can never be broken, that's great. Praise God for that. But listen, our communion with Christ can Our fellowship with Christ can. Our communion with Christ can. And that's serious. And when we grieve the spirit, we lose his fellowship and his influence. We lose his presence and power in our lives. The Bible's clear about this. And that's tragic. And we have the Holy Spirit. But the question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of us? That's the issue. He's always present. He never leaves. But that doesn't mean that we're always filled with him. And that's the basis of Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5. So go ahead and turn to Ephesians 5. And we're just going to camp here for the rest uh, of our time. Ephesians 5. And I want to begin reading um, here in Ephesians 5 in verse 14. Verse 
Paul says this. He says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is something that we have to think about and give attention to and pray for and expect. I mean, it is your responsibility to be filled with the Spirit and to pray for that and to desire it from God. You have to seek it out. It doesn't just happen. You don't just wake up and, and, and sort of roll out of bed and just, man, I, I'm filled with the Spirit. I mean, that doesn't happen. The godliest men and women that I know, I'm thinking of a, of a guy right now, I'm thinking of a man that I would, I would respect as a deeply spiritual man. And I remember him telling me one time, I never, ever wake up out of bed uh, and, and feel just totally carried along by the Spirit. It, it takes time and effort and energy and work to pray and to seek him and to know him. And that requires effort and diligence and spiritual discipline. It doesn't just happen. I mean, I hope we don't have sort of a passive mentality that says, hey, well, hey, I I received the Holy Spirit at conversion, so bam, I'm ready to go. No, there's an ongoing, subsequent ministry of the Spirit that we have to pursue and to seek out. And that's our responsibility. What does it mean to be filled? To be filled means to be controlled. Um, the metaphor that's used here is intoxication. In fact, if you think that's a weird metaphor, drunkenness, it actually it happens with a spirit and his filling three times in the New Testament. It's not an anomaly here. Uh, that metaphor is used three times. Uh, it means to be permeated, to be thoroughly influenced. The idea is to be influenced by a power that's greater than your own. Have you ever had that experience where you felt like a, a, just a rush of something came on you and, and what was that? It was like, whoa, out of nowhere, just excitement, joy, or something, some emotion. Back in 2012, I had really, really bad back pain, uh, and it was just terrible, excruciating. And, uh, and I said, what is wrong with me? And it just, just came on me. And, and so it was so bad, I'm like laying on the floor in a fetal position, and I'm just praying, God, help me. What's going on? I didn't know what happened, so... Uh, Tina took me to Dr. Mike's office. I walked in, almost fell on his floor. And uh, he knows. And, and I had a kidney stone. And, and it, was, it was just an unbelievable pain. I felt so sick. My, body, my whole body felt like one big throbbing stone. <laughs> it was terrible. And so I'm, I'm sitting there, and, and I was overcome by pain. Overcome by it. Or back in 2000. Eight, when I, mess, when I met Miss Tina for the first time in Washington, D.C., at that moment, I was filled with joy. I was overcome with the early stages of love. Or in 2010, when Judah was born, my firstborn, the firstborn is a special thing. When he was born, that same thing happened to me again. I was overcome. I was filled with joy. And again, when Arian was born this year. Do you know what I'm talking about? This, this emotion that just comes upon you. you. You're filled. That's the point. That's what it means to be filled. It means to be controlled by a power that's greater than my own. And notice that Ephesians 5.18 is a command. Be filled. It's not a suggestion here. God doesn't give us a good idea. He gives us a command. And because it's a command, we can safely conclude that it's possible to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is not simply to have the Holy Spirit. It is to be completely and totally permeated. When the Holy Spirit fills us, he fills our mind and we begin to think God's thoughts after him. He enlarges our heart. He expands our mind into deeper realities and insights into the knowledge and the love of God for us, particularly the saving mercies and grace of God in the gospel. And it draws us to an intensity of worship and it draws us to adoration of God. And just to be clear, you cannot be, it's too filled with the spirit. It's not possible. 
It's a tragedy, friends. It's a tragedy if in our fear of charismatic excesses that we de-emphasize the Spirit and miss out on certain aspects of God's filling and influence that we could and should otherwise have. That's a tragedy. And I I think that's a particular struggle and temptation that more sort of intellectual, thoughtful, uh, expository, reformed folks fall into. It is. Because we're rational. We think. We're not, we're not really into that feeling sort of experiential ministry. And I want to tell you, as faithfully as I can tell you, as a pastor and as a fellow Christian and brother, that's dangerous. It's very dangerous. And also, it's just such a, a tragedy. We're missing out on more that God's Spirit is willing to give us. Because we're scared. Hyper scared. We need to read and study the Bible theologically so that what we understand about our experience with the Holy Spirit is exactly what the Bible is directing us toward. There's nothing weird or scary about the Bible and about what the Bible is saying about the ministry and work of the Spirit. And so we have work to do here. We probably need to do a whole series really on the Holy Spirit uh, in this regard. Uh, So to be filled is not simply to have the Holy Spirit. It's to be totally permeated. Let me ask you this question. Uh, do you seek the filling of the Holy Spirit? When's the last time that you actively, proactively sought uh, the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit? Or is that something you've always been afraid to do? Don't be. You're commanded to. Don't be afraid to obey God. Um, pursue that ministry of the Holy Spirit. Is it something that you're interested in? Do you want it? Do you pray for him? Do you long for more of God? Not just for him to be present, but for him to fill you. So if we're commanded to be filled, the question I guess is practically is, I mean, how do we do that? Let's not just talk sort of 30,000 feet. Let's get down street level. How do we do this? How do we get filled with God's spirit? And I have two things that I want to give you in light of this. All right, here they are. Number one, get out of the way. And number two, get with God. Get out of the way and get with God. That'd be my formula in my best biblical understanding of how to pursue the filling of the spirit. Get out of the way. What do I mean by that? I mean this. We have to remove all obstacles. We have to get rid of everything that grieves God's spirit. Get out of the way. Are you hindering God's blessing from coming upon you? Get out of the way. Remove that obstacle. I mean, the ample biblical testimony of this, of how God restrained his spirit and his influence from someone because they were living in sin and were unwilling to humble themselves before God. We have to make war on our sin. Hebrews 12, 4, I love that verse. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Wow. Um, or... Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So notice that language of violence. I mean, it's violence. It's put to death. It's bloodshed. In other words, we are to murder our sin. Murder your sin. Crucify it. Wage war. Repent of every known sin. I mean, that's a place to start. Because you cannot live with unrepentant sin and expect God's spirit to fill you. You cannot. That's why so many Christians are just content saying, well, I received the spirit at conversion. Now I can live in sin. Well, yeah, you can do that, but you won't have any life of power. There's no source of power or greater anointing and ministry in your life that's effective or transforming. But if we choose to repent and seek God and humble ourselves then we can expect God to come in more power. That's the point of 2 Timothy 2.22. That verse rocked me a year ago. And it's just still so powerful for me. 2 Timothy 2.22, listen to this. If anyone cleanses himself, okay? That's your responsibility. Anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be, not he might be, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart, set apart, Holy, and listen to this, so precious, useful to the master. Oh, how I want to be used of the master. How I want God to take me down off of his shelf and and put me out here and use me. Don't you want to be used by God? I want to be used by God. I want to be set apart. I want to be useful to the master. 
and ready for every good works. And then he says, so flee youthful passions. Cleanse yourself, flee youthful, youthful passions. If we do that, we cleanse ourselves, we, we flee from sin. We can expect the spirit to take us off the shelf, set us aside and use us. Awesome promise. Absolutely awesome, but we fail that because we don't take sin seriously. We don't repent and deal with it like we should. And, uh, and so God will not fill an unholy vessel. So we say sin is the problem. But more specifically, the Bible mentions at least four things that hinder God's, a work of God's spirit in our life. Okay, Four things that the Bible mentions itself about hindering God's work. Here it is, number one, resisting the Holy Spirit. Acts 7.51 uh, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Resisting the Spirit. That's, that's being stubborn. It's being hard-hearted. It's, it's listening to a sermon. It's folding your hands. It's sitting in the corner. It's not responding to the words being preached or read in your, in your quiet time of the Lord in the morning. It's, it's, it's you hear convicting words, but you plug your ears and you resist the Spirit. And we do this as believers. We do this. But listen, when we resist the Spirit, we are forfeiting His ministry in our life. Second thing, desiring the flesh, craving sinful things. Galatians 5.17, Paul says the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. They're against the Spirit. It's doing things that directly opposes the Spirit. We cannot expect His blessing when we do that. And when we fight against the Spirit with our sinful desires, we cannot, we should not expect Him to come and fill us. That's crazy. And so instead, God calls us to walk in the Spirit so that we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. A third way that we keep ourselves from being filled with the Spirit, grieving the Spirit, right? Isn't that a biblical category? Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, J. Oswald Sanders once said... Grieve is a love word. You can frustrate and anger your enemies, but only loved ones can be grieved by our actions. The Holy Spirit loves you. And when you do things that are not pleasing to him, it hurts his heart. I can't understand that theologically, but I have to confess that it's true. Somehow it grieves God. Here's a fourth thing. Quenching the Holy Spirit. People, a lot of people understand the difference between quenching and grieving. First Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the spirit. What does that mean? Well, the same word quench is used in Ephesians 6 where Paul says, take out the shield of faith by which you're able to quench the fiery darts of the enemy. What do you think that means in context? The idea is that when the enemy shoots fiery darts at you of discouragement and doubt into your mind, you take up the shield of faith and you quench them. It means you make them of no effect. You nullify that fiery dart. So likewise, what does it mean to quench the spirit? It means to shut him out, to make him of no effect, to silence the spirit and his ministry and his work in your life. And we do this when we block out his voice of conviction, when he speaks to us about an issue, a broken relationship, an area of unforgiveness, a pattern of unrepentant sin. We quench him when we refuse to obey his voice and we make a tragic mistake when we do so. When we're not filled with a spirit, we forfeit every good thing that God would otherwise be doing in our life through the spirit. And what is that? Think about that. Everything, hear this, everything God does in my life comes, everything comes through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. Which is why I said that's why we have to guard this gift with the highest degree of concern and diligence. Everything comes through the Spirit. Everything. Understanding of God's Word, love for worship and prayer, strength in trial, grace to forgive, compassion for the lost, comfort in heartache, boldness in witnessing, power in ministry. Gone. All gone or at least massively diminished when we grieve the Spirit. We forfeit His filling ministry. It's no wonder that at times... Our spiritual life becomes like a wilderness, so dry and parched, so mechanical and lifeless, so superficial and shallow, so sad and depressed. Is that true for anyone this morning? If so, we need to fix that. We need to acknowledge our sin before God and ask the Spirit to revive and restore His ministry in our life. Uh, This church needs that. Um, Heritage Baptist Church is only as strong as its individual parts. And so we love each other the most when we take care of these private matters before the Lord. I mean, if somebody walks in here and they're not taking care of a private matter before the Lord, that hurts the whole church. It does. And we hurt each other. 
And, and, and pastors need to repent and, and take care of private matters before the Lord. And members and deacons, we all need to do this. But friends, I want to encourage you, okay? Don't be defeated. Let me encourage you for a second. Don't be defeated. Listen to this. Take hope in this fact, okay? Don't be a defeatist Christian. Say, man, I can never change. And man, I just feel like this is just, man, I'm just, I can't do this. Listen to me. I'm going to give you the gospel and just fill you with encouragement. Take hope in this fact. There is a supernatural power at work within you. The spirit that is at work in you, Romans 8 says, is the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So do we have problems? Yeah, absolutely. Do we have sin? You betcha, tons of it. Are we dealing, are we trying to deal with it? Yes, but here's the good news. We have the spirit and the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you and he is not some weak little spirit. Um, I don't know if you remember that, that cute little blue ghost, Casper. The Holy Spirit isn't some cute little blue ghost kind of floating around helping us raise our hands in worship. Uh, no, he's the spirit of power. There's divine, supernatural strength there. He's likened to a mighty rushing wind upon us. And so let me leave you with this. There is great hope for you. The Spirit wants to work in you in a way. You've got to have a heart that's open and receptive to that. But there's great power at work in you to change. So four steps. Let me leave leave you with this. Four things to take home with you. Four steps into a closer, more Spirit-filled walk with God in 2014. And today. Just right now. All right? Four things. Number one, acknowledge just, I have four words. Acknowledge your need to be filled. Just start there this morning. I need to be filled with God's spirit. You need to be filled every day. But I, it's something I've neglected in my Christian life. And so admit that and say, I need to be filled. Just admit the problem and agree to do something about it. Okay? Then, number two, confess. Confess all known sin. I mean, get out of the way. Get some friends, sit, let them sit down with you and just say, you talk to me about my sin and I'll listen. Just, man, I, I've, got, I've got to do that. Just, just mention, just show me the cream cheese on my mustache that I can't see. Help me see like where, I'm, I'm, where I come off as arrogant, where I come off as boastful, where help me see where I'm short with people, where my temper, just help me. Just please help me. Put a mirror in me, in, my, in front of me so I can see myself. Wage war against your sin. Confess it. Stop grieving and resisting the spirit. I mean, uh, Ephesians again, confess James 5. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed God help us to do that. Um, instead, repent by God's grace and through the hope of the gospel, put to death the desires of your flesh. Holy violence, friends, against our sin. Number three. So acknowledge, confess. Number three, surrender. Surrender yourself completely to God. Eliminate all secondary concerns and goals that have taken priority over the main goal of walking closely with God. I mean, ask yourself the question, what has, what has arisen as more prominent than knowing God and seeking him as your, as your number one goal and objective every day? What is it? I mean, I, what creeps in? I can tell you what creeps in my life. It's busyness. It's the schedule. It's the thing that I want to get to. It's selfishness. I mean, I wake up so often just feeling selfish. I just want to do what I've planned to do. And, 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 and God is pushed back and I have, to, I have to repent of that. It's sin. And so what is it that creeps in? Surrender all of that and reprioritize your communion and fellowship with God. And finally, pray. Pray. Ask God. Just at, do what you're supposed to do. Ask God to fill you. Uh, do this every morning. Just ask him. Luke eleven eleven. Isn't this awesome? If a son asks for bread, will any father among you give him a stone? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's going to do that. He will do that. I, I feel like I talk about prayer a lot, and, um, and yet I'm convinced that I don't talk about it enough, believe it or not. 
Um, I'm also convinced that I don't model it enough. And I'm also convinced that I have not set a compelling enough example for our church for prayer. And I ask your forgiveness for that. It's sin and it's wrong. And, um, and, and I want to redouble my effort to help our church move uh, to prayer in a more significant way. And, and, and I, you know, I've tried to, I try to pray five things every, every day when I get up. And, and these five, the, the, the Spirit just convicted me of this and, and impressed this upon my heart at one point. And it is these five things were just burning in me. And here they are. And if it's helpful for you, then take it. Number one, I pray, uh, Lord, give me the gift. Show me my sin and give me the gift of a deep and true repentance. Like, I really want to repent over my sin. I don't want to just see it. I want to see it first and then really repent. Number two, grant me a heightened sensitivity of conscience so that I'm slower to sin. I don't want to sin. Grant that to me. Um, Number three, so that the result of that is that I grow in greater degrees of holiness before God and godliness. With the result that number four, I can freely ask God to anoint me and fill me, 2 Timothy 2.20, with fresh wind and fire and power. And I can ask that with a degree of confidence and boldness because I'm taking care of my sin before the Lord and growing in holiness and number five, with the result that, see, they're all building on each other, that my life will be useful in ministry, that God would use me, and that my life would not be wasted, not for my praise, but for his glory. I, I try to pray those things. Friends, we must pray. This is our central duty. It all starts on our knees. I cannot emphasize how much I do not want us to be a typical church that has great programming and lots of cool events that is so secondary to our most central concern. And so we've got to be a spirit-filled body. And, and so, I mean, is anyone else feeling that? Is anyone else tired of sort of walking through the Christian life on your own strength? Just sick of that. Just sick. Just sick and tired of getting up and just trying to just trudge through another day. I, I, I hate that in me. I, I see that in me. I hate that. And I don't want that. And so, friends, if we don't want that, it will require a sacrificial life of godliness. And listen, extraordinary prayer. Extraordinary prayer. That's what it's going to require. And I just, I just plead with us to be, to be different in 2014. Let it be said that in 2014, God fell on this church. He fell on this church because we started prioritizing um, our holiness and our prayer and we started, we started loving God and appreciating and expecting and wanting and pursuing a ministry of his spirit like we never have before. That's my prayer for us. But we are only strong as strong as our individual parts. So I pray that, that we will do this as a team and we will move forward together. And pray for your pastors because we're sinful men and we need the gospel and God's help. And we'll pray for you. And let's seek the Lord together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you that you are convicting us and shaping us. Lord, move us forward. Help us to make these resolves. We pray for your, the greatest work of your spirit in our life. And we pray that you would just heal us. Save us from ourselves and from our own flesh. And draw us sweetly into your presence. In Christ's name, amen.